Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Lisa Craig with us from the Craig Group. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Danielle. Glad to be here. So um, tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I am a 30-plus year practitioner of historic preservation. Um, I actually like to look at it more as community preservation over the years. Um, I've had quite a variety of uh, positions, um, both volunteer and professional. Um, I've worked pretty much every seat at the table in the historic preservation movement of state preservation officer, local historic preservation uh, head of a, a local uh, planning agency, um, also dealing with uh, property redevelopment on historic sites. Um, ran a nonprofit historic preservation organization, worked for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and I'm now doing resilience planning uh, targeted specifically to historic coastal and uh, riverine communities. And was there something um, in like the different um, roles that you have you have held, were there or, or positions? Were, were was there something that led you towards the the, the the sea, you know, the, the rising waters, whether it's the sea levels or the, or the river levels? Yeah. Um, I, I think in some aspects, yes. I think the first thing we always learn in historic preservation is water is the enemy of any historic building or structure. It is. So in some <laughs> respects, when you get that as a foundation, you pay more attention to how water is impacting uh, building materials and uh, uh, building forms and just the very existence of historic assets. Uh, but I think very um, specifically when I took the position of head of historic preservation for the National Landmark District uh, for City of Annapolis, I was working closely with colleagues at the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Union of Concerned Scientists, which had just put out their report, uh, Landmarks at Risk. And uh, in that publication, they identified um, the city of Annapolis and our historic district uh, based on studies that had been completed by, by NOAA, that we were experiencing the greatest amount of tidal flooding and sea level rise of any of the coastal uh, communities. It, it was the largest increase 
over a 50-year period. And so that being the case, it was pretty evident to us as we were looking at 30 to 40 days of uh, tidal flooding in our historic downtown that we needed to better plan for protection of our historic district. Yes, yeah. And and I when we're, we talk a lot about, because in the existing building code, um, you know, there's exemptions for historic buildings in floodplains because, you know, a lot of times those buildings were built near water because they needed to be near the water. But now that's causing even more problems now that, you know, we have these, these other, other you know, the, the water levels being higher than, than they ever have been. Uh-huh. So yeah. how, how, did you, how did you start your business? You went from, you know, working, working uh, for different organizations and, and municipalities and then you decided to go out on your own. How did, how did that come about? Well, I think, um, you know, as you mentioned previously, and I think it's a a good uh, starting point for this, when we look at city codes, um, particularly uh, floodplain management ordinances, which are now being revised based on the new FEMA maps, we start seeing, um, interestingly, exemptions or variances for having to adapt historic buildings to a future rising seas. And... I found that odd uh, at a time when we were working so hard in the city of Annapolis to develop um, a plan for adapting our historic buildings based on FEMA guidance for hazard mitigation planning. Um, And we had done such an effective job of developing uh, the nation's first um, FEMA-based cultural resource hazard mitigation plan that identified incentives, it identified uh, wet proofing measures, um, elevation, relocation of buildings, policies, financial incentives that the city adopted to support the um, protection and adaptation of those buildings. So. I think what I was struck by was investing a good four to five years of my time and the 32 stakeholders we had uh, time into this project, it was critical for me to spread the word beyond the city of Annapolis. Uh, It really became something that many communities were starting to address, many historic coastal communities, and not just because of tidal flooding or extreme precipitation, but because of major disasters, as you know, we can think about the many increased uh, threats of hurricane and extreme precipitation over the last 10 years, uh, there was obviously a need for historic coastal communities to plan for and appropriately adapt buildings. So I had completed my work with the city, as it does happen uh, regularly for those of us working in local government. There was a change in administration. Um, They went one direction and I took another. And so I uh, started working with my colleagues all over the country and we identified places where I might be able to assist them in planning efforts. So that's uh, what's underway right now. I decided to launch my own firm um, and use my contacts and use um, professionals I've been working with over the years to begin uh, a practice around resilience planning for uh, cultural uh, resources and historic communities. And and I think that there's there's a need uh, for that, because I think that there's an acknowledgement that it that there's that it's happening and that something needs to be done. But to have somebody that can come in at special with specialized knowledge and then to bring the stakeholders together, I think is um, 
is important because it's kind of charting new territory. Yes, yes, it is. And it's a very focused area. It's a very uh, specific type of resource base you're you're working with. And um, a lot of uh, a lot of emotional ties to to buildings and historic communities by residents. So um, it's a it's a fascinating area of resilience planning to be in. Yes. So can you explain to me, you know, what resilience planning is um, for for specifically for historic preservation, but, you know, just in general also? Right. Well, in the instance of resilience planning, there's a lot of things that in the the larger picture of being a more resilient community you plan for. Obviously, uh, uh, issues of disasters and and hazards that are shockers to the community. That's typically one of the terms you see. So how communities uh, prepare for, withstand, and recover from those shocks is really resilience planning in a nutshell. But uh, there are other issues. Uh, You're dealing with social equity issues, communities who are particularly at threat, uh, not just from disasters, weather-related or otherwise, but also those that may be dealing um, with the effects of food scarcity um, or other issues of um, uh, community need that require um, a city to plan for the various uh, threats uh, to to a community. So it's pretty um, uh, broad reaching, but in my particular area, which is really resilience planning for historic communities, we tend to be looking at a little bit of social equity issues, very much so, because we find a lot of communities that have developed over the years, maybe those that are most vulnerable. It could be a historic area, but not all historic buildings were built on high ground. Uh, You know, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, you would tend to see many of those buildings built on high ground because they knew the vagaries of Uh, Mother Nature, uh, particularly in the southeast where there's an understanding about um, hurricanes and extreme storm events. But uh, in other places, you know, that are um, what we would uh, now say historic, which is really only 50 years or older, (laughs) you were getting development that was occurring because nobody was paying any attention to where the flood zones were. And they were doing new construction. And all you have to think about is New Orleans to understand, you know, what I'm talking about. So uh, that being the case, Resilience planning for historic communities really is focusing on the potential uh, loss of historic assets, those buildings that contribute not only to the architectural and and historic character of communities, but also the economic uh, character and needs of those communities. They are heritage assets. It's what uh, draws people to St. Augustine or to Nantucket or to Annapolis or to Charleston. The character of the historic areas is an economic generator for communities. And when um, a devastating event happens or when property owners in those communities can't even uh, leave their homes, as is the case in Norfolk when they get uh, high tides, some of those neighborhoods are completely isolated. And so they're not even able to um, get in and out of their neighborhoods. When that type of event occurs, you need to really be responsible to the future of 
uh, those residents of those historic properties and those properties themselves, which generate income for the city and for uh, local businesses. So do you, um, when you're when you're working on your plans, do you like go in and use I, I know you mentioned the FEMA maps, but do you go in and use like some of the modeling of like the weather events and things and then figure out, you know, how to or do you look at like what, what the existing conditions are and what's happening now? Like what's what's what are people typically calling you? Is it usually something's happened and now they need, you know, a solution? Uh, sometimes it is just one more step in an ongoing resilience planning process. Okay. Sometimes it's in response to funding that they received uh, to do some post-event um, planning, uh, whether it was after Sandy or Irma or Harvey um, or Matthew or Michael or Florence, you know, we can go on and on. Right. Um, the idea is that there is a process that is um, was established by FEMA and, and frankly is um, a, a typical planning process. And it's really four steps and it takes a while to get through those. It took uh, a while for us in Annapolis because there's so many other things going on when you're dealing with a planning office that this is just one program. So, so what I usually do uh, with any community is first look at what they've already completed. Many times you'll find they have gotten some funding to do what they call a vulnerability assessment, a risk assessment of what really is at risk. And they've looked at their FEMA maps. They know where their flood risk area is, where their 1% chance or what we call the 100-year, people know it as a 100-year right. floodplain area is. Um, and so when I come in and we're dealing specifically with a flood risk area, uh, that is a historic area, we tend to start by organizing um, resources, not just understanding what the buildings are and um, ensuring that a survey has been completed to document all of the buildings that are contributing to the historic character of that community, but to also put together who are the right people that need to be at the table. It's just not the preservationists, it's the planners, right. it's the emergency managers, it's the environmental um, staff, it's also uh, the civic organizations, the homeowner groups, the business associations, and um, most importantly, those property owners that have most at stake. So once you start organizing and understanding your resources at risk, the stakeholders you must have to the at the table, and then the resources, the funding you need to conduct this work, until you've done that, you really can't move on to the, to the next step, which is the risk assessment, taking those vulnerability studies that have been completed, and then determining specifically what buildings are most at risk, and even more importantly, what the community prioritizes as the most important parts of their historic district to protect. Right. Um, that's, an, that's an exercise we end up going through before we can get to the phase three component, which is really the actual planning, you know, setting your goals and objectives, yeah. what tasks, what adaptation strategies work best for different building types. And then the fourth step is always making sure you get the money and the collaboration uh, and the agreements in place that may need to be interjurisdictional to 
um, provide uh, the resources needed to implement the plan. So it really is a simple four-step process that can take quite a lot of time oh, to yeah. complete. I, yeah, I can imagine the getting everybody, all of the different stakeholders with all the different agendas to agree on priorities. I'm sure that's a challenge. Very, yeah, that, that's one of the biggest <laughs> challenges. We spend a lot of time in community engagement and and uh, public involvement throughout all four steps of the process because you need that total buy-in. Yeah, and and I know we chatted a little bit before we started um, the recording, and you talked about you know one of the challenges you're struggling with right now too is community engagement. You know, in the in the era of social distancing. So yes. I don't know. Have you have you do you have like any workarounds that you've devised? Are you still working on some solutions for that? Well, I think um, one of the good signs is now uh, that historic district commissions or historic preservation commissions, which work under local uh, government um, agencies, usually within the planning area, are now starting to do online meetings. They're using uh, typically Zoom or Zoom, a combination of Zoom and YouTube is something they're using in Nantucket in order to engage uh, community members through an, uh, kind of an abbreviated uh, public process, but importantly a public process no less, right. in going through their normal agenda. So we're looking at opportunities in different communities to do just that. In some respects, we're probably meeting uh, as stakeholder uh, team members more frequently uh, via Zoom. So we are doing that on a, a consistent basis with those that are part of the uh, planning team. But I think we're now just starting to look at other mechanisms, more than just conducting webinars. This is certainly right. a, a tool that's been around for a long time. But instead, uh, being more interactive um, by uh, looking at other means. We, we're looking at um, two approaches. We're looking at a, a podcast-based approach to basically uh, after a webinar or as part of a Zoom meeting, um, uh, do follow-on interviews with community members who express an interest in talking more about the topic and getting their feedback on the information that was presented. So it's not just a Q&A, which we can still easily do through right. uh, uh, Zoom, but it goes beyond. It takes it into what are your really thought, what are your thoughts behind this? What, how does uh, climate change, sea level rise, uh, impact you and, and your business, your livelihood, or you and your family and your property. Right. So we'll be using a podcast format um, if we can make that work uh, through um, America Adapts, um, which is uh, hosted by Doug Parsons. Um, and that's something we're looking at. And then we're also looking at another form, a platform of um, online uh, video broadcasting where we can do a conference, in essence, via uh, a, an online um, right. yeah. uh, interview process with panelists where the community can ask questions and engage with the audience online. So we're looking at a variety of different formats um, to be able to conduct these workshops because the community engagement aspect is so important. Uh, we can do online surveys, which we've done in the past successfully in communities. I've worked with like St. Augustine um, and Nantucket and um, I think uh, we'll be able to still get, and maybe even more so, um, inclusivity in our surveys because we're reaching out to a broader group of individuals um, 
many times if you go to a conference and you schedule the conference or the workshop during the middle of the day, um, right. you know, people don't come, they're working, and so you may get a lot more retirees and others who um, can take time from their workday to attend. Right. Um, if you do it on a weekend, you may not give, get public uh, employees coming to it um, because they want to be home with their families. So we're hoping that by doing a combination of uh, webinars, uh, podcasts, um, online broadcasting videos, uh, YouTube, we can reach a uh, more diverse audience. Yeah, I would, I would, I would think that yeah, that makes it more accessible and more. Um, um, I guess accessible is the word I was thinking, mm-hmm. but it, but it does, it does make it so that you, it, it, there's a less of a barrier to entry. Right, exactly, exactly. And and even to the point we had a follow-on conversation today about it may be a, a, a very effective educational tool. Um, something like a podcast, snippets like that could be played, uh, you know, uh, with parents and children. There's all of everyone staying home now. So right. as a parent, maybe you're using this as a tool to educate your children. Um, and so it, it really has no uh, age barrier, and I think that's what we're trying to do is get it down to the future generations um, that actually will have to deal with this problem in a very um, uh, urgent way right. if we don't do anything now. So. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful time in some respects to be working remotely and really <laughs> thinking about how technology is so vital to our continued connection uh, yeah. with with people and with topics we hold dear. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so I know that you look at the entire community. What what are the typical solutions that you that you come up with? Is it raising the buildings? Is it moving the buildings? Is it creating barriers? Like what 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 are you, is there a typical solution, or is every community different? Uh, no, you know it's 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 like people in some respects. Um, there's different treatment methods for any type of uh, uh, disease. So I think that we're we're looking at situations where depending on. Uh, the current condition of the building, uh, where it's located, uh, the type of community that it's in. It may be easier in Louisiana to raise a single-family home um, to elevate it on piers um, than it would be to do a row house in Annapolis. I mean, it's a building is a different form, structure, uh, material, makeup. And so what we look at instead is adaptation alternatives beyond elevation. Um, Elevation does work in some instances, and it can be um, attractively and sensitively designed, particularly in a uh, uh, single-family situation. That makes sense. But when you don't have that, when you're in a setting uh, much like Charleston where you have row houses or you have single-family homes immediately adjacent to each other and you have an entire block of what in Charleston they'll refer to as sister houses where they look exactly the same all the way up the street and then one yeah. person decides to elevate it what is the precedent you're setting because <laughs> right. at some point in time it's possible the rest of the street will have to do it 
but think very carefully about how the commission approves that first uh, prototype oh, yeah. because everything else will follow. So, so when you're looking at that um, compared to when you're looking at small frame cottages uh, in Nantucket, shingle-sided buildings, that need to be elevated, um, or in some instances, maybe even relocated from their position back if there's available land. Um, some of the, the finest homes in Sconset uh, on the island of Nantucket aren't experiencing sea level rise in terms of rising waters. They're experiencing uh, erosion of the uh, uh, land on which the cliffs on which they're oh, yeah. constructed. Yeah. So they relocate and they have to move back um, it, it's one thing if you have multi-million dollar homes and you can afford to do that. It's another thing if you're a small cottage um, yeah. that your family has had for years and, you know, you don't know if you can afford that. Yeah, so, we were in um, Oregon last mm-hmm. year um, for Christmas. My dad's family's from Oregon, and we were on the coast. And the amount of erosion just in my recallable lifetime was you know there's you know now it's like a four foot drop you know from the where the where you would walk over the dune to go to the beach it's it's not just mm-hmm. a slope anymore it's like a, it's like it's a, a drop <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and i think that that's why it's so important not only to think about the adaptation as it relates to um, uh, you know, typical understanding of building elevation, but also are there other things you can do to flood-proof your building? Um, and do you do things that are temporary for purposes of anticipating uh, a, a major storm event, you know, wrap uh, the lower half of your building um, versus maybe something more permanent like uh, looking at a combination of things. Uh, If you're on the coast, can you first construct uh, a living shoreline and then uh, ramp up and do a small, yeah, barrier wall uh, to a retaining wall and then ramp up again and um, create uh, somewhat of a dune or another natural resource base before you get to the house. So I think really we're trying to look sensitively to how we can use nature-based solutions uh, equal to structural solutions and some temporary, some things may just be let's do a better design for a window or door dam so we're not using sandbags but instead we're using something with a, a stronger structural um, uh, ability to um, main, maintain water um, away from, from the material itself. Um, or in some instances, do we wet or dry flood proof in, in the sense that we want to keep the water out and with the barrier, we want to allow the water to wash in through and out again so that we have flood vents underneath buildings so the water can wash in and then out, or even in commercial buildings near the water. Uh, concrete floors, uh, we open up and let the water wash, rush in and out. We elevate mechanicals so that they're out of the way. So I think you know, property owners have to be creative and thoughtful on the strategy that will best protect their resource um, and uh, allow them to um, afford after an event um, to be able to um, rebuild um, well, or and restore. I'm too, that's maybe working more with the nature instead of trying to fight it, you know, like allow, right. uh, uh, let the flood happen, you know, it's going to happen mm-hmm. and then, you know, make it easy to recover from that rather than right. having to, um, you know, do some of the, 
you know, the the complete rebuilds of like, you know, exactly. the first floor. Yeah. 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 That's that's the that's the case. So are your clients mostly then municipalities? Um, yeah, mostly. Um, I tend to work for local governments because those are the ones that are doing the planning efforts, but I have worked for historic nonprofits. So, for example, um, Historic Annapolis is a nonprofit organization that uh, serves as the steward for 12 state-owned buildings, but they are a separate 501c3. They uh, realized that they needed to develop a disaster and emergency management plan for their buildings and um, you know as in all buildings they deal older buildings um, there's always a great concern for fire um, you know unfortunately a terrorism activity if you're in a state capital they have to think right. about that but the other thing they have to consider are other natural disasters uh, if they're dealing with uh, extreme storm events for example so we worked with um, a small um, management team which in included their curator of collections because with historic property, sometimes not just the building, it's the valuable um, uh, resources inside. Um, So we we worked to develop a plan whereby they could strategically phase in improvements to the buildings that would better adapt them to their current flood risk um, and identified what needs to be done in in the case of an emergency if they know there is going to be a flooding event happening, a, a major storm coming. Uh, how do they secure their collections um, and doing it in a strategic way so it's the best use of their time and uh, effort? So um, that's one other organization I've worked with, and I hope to be able to do more of those plans, a very effective online process for disaster planning for historic sites. And then I've worked with some of the national organizations. Um, Uh, I'm working right now with the National Alliance of Preservation Commissions to develop uh, disaster training modules for communities, for historic preservation commissions, so they can understand better how to incorporate into their ordinances, um, into their design review standards, uh, treatment of historic buildings for flooding adaptation. So um, uh, those are, uh, I get to often work with uh, private nonprofit uh, groups as, as well. That, and that seems, the, having the, the training aspect, I think, too, allows you to, to impact more, more, more areas and more properties. So that, I think that's a, that's a good Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. also and is it's a kind of a, to introduce yourself. Right, yeah. right. And train the trainer, I think, is the concept, is the more I get out to those who are in decision-making um, positions, the, the more confidence I have that they're sharing the lessons they've learned with their community members. Yes. So I think we talked a little bit about um, what a homeowner can do, whether, you know, depending on the type of house they're, they're, they're in the structure and, and things like that. But do you have any specific tips for, for a homeowner? Um, the first thing I always tell everybody, this is just, I don't know if this is, you know, from my own personal experience or just from working with FEMA so closely, is buy flood insurance. Um, it doesn't matter if you think, well, I'm not in the flood zone or if your bank doesn't require you to because 
they don't see you in the flood zone or if you don't have a mortgage and you're not required to get flood insurance you don't need to buy flood insurance because at some point in time somebody will have a um, uh, a flood in their property that crosses your property line and gets into yours you're covered by the national flood insurance program so or if there's a water main break in the city um, that's the other thing I see failing right now is infrastructure oh, yeah. is in such bad shape it we is. tend to see um, when we get these flooding events flooding is occurring all over once it crosses a property line and goes onto your property line you are covered under the national flood insurance program so the first thing I say to people is get flood insurance then the second thing I do is just uh, give them information about where their property sits within the flood zone help them understand what the chances are of a flood event and when you try to explain to people and use the term a hundred year flood event that they think means oh there's one chance in a hundred years <laughs> when in reality it's one chance every year that right. you'll be flooded the next year and so it really becomes uh, a situation where you might experience 26 floods over 100 years. Um, you don't know. It's just a situation that you need to anticipate. And um, I, I, I don't like to point it out, but I have to point it out. Um, uh, one of my nearest and dearest places that I would go to, Ellicott City, Maryland, oh, yeah. um, They've had... had yeah. they have within an 18 month period and you have the governor first saying oh but it was a one in 1000 year event and then it happened again uh, yeah. uh, just over a year later so I think it's really important that we not use those terms in an irresponsible way and we explain flood risk is constant so um, you know after educating individuals after advising them on how to best protect their assets after explaining have a family emergency plan first that's the most important thing because you can't deal with your own property unless you've made sure your family is, is safe and secure right. so usually that's when we start getting into the alternatives for adaptation for their own personal properties and um, trying to explain to them the benefits the financial benefits of investing that money now um, versus what your potential costs could be in the instance of a loss is another focus um, oh, I try good, to take but yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a really good way to look at it rather than rather than viewing it as an expense now it, it's more you know it's it's more of a almost buying insurance <laughs> yeah it's it's a savings I know that um, <clears throat> there uh, in terms of uh, the costs related to um, planning or the savings related to planning for uh, disaster events FEMA has uh, using some uh, studies that have been done nationally FEMA has stated and it's pretty clear that the savings that a community realizes by investing a dollar now means six dollars in savings in the instance of disaster recovery later so they're really focusing on providing funding to local governments to help 
plan and prepare for future events just because of the fact that the more prepared you are, the the less damage you're likely to have in, in your community. So it is certainly an economic benefit to plan uh, for loss, um, but at the same time, uh, do the best that you can to minimize that loss. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. So is there anything that you wish that you knew when you got started, either in your career or your business, you can take it however you want that you, that you know now? <laughs> that, that I know now. Um, I tell people sometimes, and, and I love the work that uh, our, our historic preservation offices at the state and the local community does when it comes to, to surveying historic buildings. I think it's really important for us to understand uh, how those particular properties, buildings, um, landmarks have evolved, what they've meant to our community, uh, the people and the, the patterns of um, uh, public history um, that are tied intimately to particular buildings and places. And some very evocative stories we learn through that process. But the one thing I will say is that it, um, when I first started, I really didn't fully embrace how important um, uh, local government ordinances and policies are to the preservation or the um, demolition and loss or destruction of our historic assets. So I think the thing um, I do a lot now is policy. I mean, to me, it's really important to identify communities that have incentives, that have good policies in place that balance historic preservation with community development, economic development, and other community needs. And so I think the thing I've learned the most is it's not just about focusing on the values of historic preservation, you sometimes have to take your preservation hat off and sit at the table with the emergency manager and really understand that what they're trying to do, what they're trying to achieve in the protection of people and places has some resonance with what you're trying to do as well. Right. So, so just empathize um, particularly if you've been through disasters, you're kind of in it together with those other um, agency heads and learn a lot more about some of the other fields in which you work in local government because I think that if I had had a stronger understanding that policy is really about people um, first and um, places and people you know, kind of naturally fit together, Right. Uh, it would have been a much easier thing for me to do. So I've learned that over the years. I think we yeah. all learned something. I, like I agree. Our I profession. agree. And, and I know when I do, um, when we do pre- presentations and we're talking about the different, you know, they're mostly for homeowners and we're talking about, you know, the, the different um, regulations and things for, for um, historic buildings. And, you know, but I, and I'll, I'll say, but, you know, all all of this is decided on the local level. So if your municipality does not have, you know, a, a demolition review process or, you know, anything like that, you know, you you need to get involved with your municipality because that's right. the only way you're going to stop it, the, the, you know, chaining yourself to the bulldozer. 
it's not the way you're yeah, going to stop it. Yeah, it's a it's 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 still there every once in a while, yeah. but a little bit more a thing of the past. And right. I I think we've benefited <laughs> from having a, a strong historic preservation program, but it does seem to be constantly under threat. It and does, yeah. I think um, educating at the local level. Um, one of the things I learned with this uh, work in resilience planning is that you must have key decision makers at the table when you're developing these plans. If if you can't get your city manager, your council member, your director of the planning department, your head of the tourism agency, if you can't get all of those people, your chamber head or Main Street head, if they're not in the room when you're coming up with your um, goals and objectives and coming up with strategies, then you've missed the boat. Um, right. you, you really will not be able to get their buy-in at the end if they weren't part of the crafting of your plan at the beginning. So um, I think that that's probably the second thing I've learned most. Oh, and that's probably why I named my firm <laughs> the way I did, because it, it's really about partners and planning and policy. Um, you got to have all three of those yeah, effectively working together yeah. before you can have a successful historic preservation program. I, I agree. So do you, you, you see a lot of different communities. What, what do you see as the biggest challenges or trends in preservation? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, here's my perception, having started my preservation career, I, I started my preservation career in, uh, in Savannah, and it was really going to school at Savannah College of Art and Design, and then relocating back to the West Coast, um, and going to the University of Oregon, and um, running the nonprofit, the Historic Preservation League there. So the East Coast, West Coast, okay, East Coast has a much stronger, and I really didn't think of this seriously until I spent my last 30 some years there. East Coast has a much stronger preservation ethic. There's, there's, there is a concern for property rights, quote unquote, and the imposition of um, preservation rules on top of planning rules and so forth in communities in the East. But they don't really take it, um, they, they have, a, a stronger regard for uh, their history, I believe, and right. I think it's just because it's older, you know, yeah, it's, and then they're dealing with hundreds of years worth of historic architecture and community uh, development and planning. So it was easier to do preservation, not that we didn't have property rights issues that we were dealing with, um, but it was more building by building. Having right. come back and living in a fairly conservative uh, small town in California, which is itself, you know, a very forward-looking state, um, I've been surprised to see that my community doesn't have a historic preservation ordinance. It has a nice historic character to its downtown. It has historic neighborhoods that are still intact with no real designation. And so, um, you know, buildings now are starting to be demolished. Right. And it's been interesting to see the loss of a number of historic school buildings. I was dealing with school building um, restoration issues uh, and, and uh, demolition 20 years ago. I thought right. we were past that. Yeah. 
but clearly not. And I think that what I have come to appreciate is that it's, it's cyclical. You know, you're constantly coming back around to what were topical issues 20 years ago or topical again. So um, constant education and awareness building of the value of historic buildings as community assets and what their economic opportunities are, why you should save them, how sustainability plays a key role in that, um, and how uh, heritage tourism is impacted when certain buildings are gone. So I think that's really what I've come to appreciate um, and why in some respects I'm probably out in front on this concept of resilience planning just because I think we need to keep looking forward and, right. um, you know, be on top of our game when it comes to what is the next biggest threat for historic assets. And um, in this particular instance, I really think it's Mother Nature. So. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. So how should our uh, listeners contact you? Um, uh, they can contact me via uh, my email, which is lcraiggroup at gmail.com. They can check out my website uh, at thecraiggrouppartners.com. Um, um, and they can, uh, you know, find me on LinkedIn. I get, okay. get so many people from LinkedIn, I can't believe it. So it's always a great tool uh, uh, through LinkedIn to connect with me and uh, see if I can help you with uh, your preservation issue. Okay, very good. And I forgot to ask you, I usually ask before I ask how people should contact you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you or that we didn't cover that you wanted to, you wanted to mention? Um, I think the only thing I, I really ever want to stress is the importance of um, in the preservation community, in any, any um, profession obviously, but certainly in the preservation community, um, I'm a big supporter of uh, mentoring. And so I've found over the years that working with students, working with interns, using interns to help with research uh, and kind of giving them a certain amount of free reign to do their projects has been very effective for our community. I've been very blessed to have some excellent interns over the years who have gone off to do really good work with preservation organizations. So oftentimes I'll, I'll unfortunately hear from colleagues, oh, I don't want to work with an intern. It takes too much time. I have to train them. They have to learn this. And what I would say to that is that I think we are all um, uh, responsible for the next generation uh, in our field. And it just isn't what happens in the classroom. It's right. also what happens in the field. So I can't stress uh, enough to those people out there that have the ability to bring uh, um, a young student in to work with them. I've worked with high school students um, all the way up to older students who have gone back to school as interns. So I would encourage the preservation community and those listening to really find themselves an intern and uh, work to shape that person's future. Yeah, it, 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 I think I, when, whenever we have an intern, and we've had multiple in the field and, and in the office, and I always try to give experiences that they might not get otherwise. And, uh, you know, exactly. Just, because that, that's just, I mean, 
that's what I enjoy learning all the time. So I, I, I just assume everybody's like me. <laughs> well, then that's a good assumption to make. I think we should go with that. So we're always learning. Hey, I started learning about resilience uh, and doing this work when I was in my 50s. So, you know, it's really important to understand you're always going to learn and you've got to learn new things to be relevant in your field. Yeah, I agree. So do you have, I know that the world is kind of um, um, crazy right now, but do you have any seminars or publications or anything that you want to let our listeners know about? Um, I don't have any right now that are, are, are coming out. I certainly okay. would like to, though, encourage people, and, and I just say this because it's been so useful um, to me, uh, is to stay tuned to a couple of uh, the organizations and podcasts and webinars. I already mentioned Doug Parsons with America Adapts. I think that's a great resource. I'm constantly finding connections to uh, heritage and preservation through those broadcasts as well as best practice ex- examples. Um, I'd also say uh, stay tuned to the Main Street America uh, webinars. They're doing some great webinars that are talking about how businesses can can survive and then thrive through this period, uh, this downturn and, and the social distancing and how we can build on small business and economic recovery. So I'm a big supporter of local and small business because those people keep those buildings that we love dearly occupied. Right. So um, those, are, those are two I'm really focusing on right now okay. as well, great good. learning resources. Okay, well, thank you very much for for coming on today. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.